This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, and with me today is Simon McDonald. How are you doing, Simon? Pretty good, Ed. Thanks for having me. We also have Sam Basu with us. How are you doing, Sam? Hey, Ed. Yeah, I'm good. So, Simon, this is your first time on the show. Why don't you give us a quick introduction? Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've been up to, some projects that you're working on. Sure, no problem. Uh, my name is Simon McDonald, quite obviously, and uh, I currently work for Adobe. Uh, I'm on the PhoneGap team on Adobe, and I've been there for just just over two years now. Uh, but I've been working in the Apache Cordova PhoneGap realm since about 2010, 2011, when I was uh, at IBM. Uh, I was part of a team at IBM that decided that PhoneGap was the way to go for cross-platform mobile applications. So uh, we jumped in early, the pre-1.0 days, and, and helped get things going. Uh, so these days for Adobe, I continue to work on the PhoneGap project, kind of pitching in wherever things are needed. And a big part of what I'm doing right now is is to do with push notifications. Excellent. And uh, Sam, you've been on the show with us before, but why don't you give us a quick uh, little bit about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm um, Ed's partner in crime, also a developer advocate at uh, Progress. Uh, and uh, Ed and me both deal with a lot of the .NET tooling that we have, but also uh, a lot of the modern web and uh, cross-platform mobile. So I think um, I'm pretty excited to have Simon on the show. Uh, just a disclosure, I was um, at uh, North Carolina DevCon, NC DevCon, a couple of weeks back, and I met Simon, and he did an excellent talk. Uh, and I would, uh, I'm just excited to have him on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. We brought uh, Simon on the show today to talk about uh, push notifications, phone gap, and some hybrid development. And again, we appreciate you being on the show, Simon. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here. All right, Simon, so let me kick it off. Um, so hybrid, um, it's a great promise. It's where developers get to reuse your web skills, uh, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, to make uh, cross-platform mobile apps. Uh, I mean, it's 2016, 2017 almost. It's, uh, it's not excusable to just write apps for one platform anymore. You really have to do cross-platform. So what's the state of hybrid development today? Well, I think uh, today, if you're building an application, you're going to start with a hybrid application uh, right from the very get-go. There are so many different uh, ways to accomplish it, whether you'd be using something built on top of Apache Cordova, like PhoneGap or Ionic, or a solution like NativeScript or React Native. Uh, there's like so many different ways you can go that it just makes sense to kind of write everything in JavaScript first and then see where you have to enhance things with Native later. Yeah, I love the fact that we are able to reuse JavaScript um, and truly make it ubiquitous to reach like all of these mobile platforms. Now, what's the uh, difference, I guess, um, for our listeners between what we know as uh, Apache Cordova and what's PhoneGap? Yeah, that's actually a question uh, I hear an awful lot. It's it's a little bit confusing, but allow me to kind of go back. Uh, down memory lane here and see if I can make it less confusing for people. Um, so the PhoneGap project itself uh, was started by a small company in Vancouver, BC called Natobi, and uh, they were eventually purchased by Adobe. 
themselves. So as part of the purchase, Adobe got the rights to the PhoneGap name. Uh, in order to make sure that everything stayed open source and it would be available to everyone, they negotiated that as part of the purchase, they would donate all of the code to the Apache Software Foundation. And that's where things became known as Apache Cordova. And the interesting piece of trivia is that the Natobi offices in Vancouver were on Cordova Street, and that's where it gets its name. Uh, initially, it was going to be called Apache Callback, which would have been the worst name in the history of the world. Um, you know, remember, one of the hardest problems in computer science is actually naming things, and there you go. Um, <clears throat> when it comes down to it, when you look at Apache Cordova versus PhoneGap, there really isn't a lot of differences. Um, Basically, the way I like to think of it is Apache Cordova is like the Linux kernel, and PhoneGap is like a Linux distribution. Uh, so things like PhoneGap, things like Ionic, things like Onsen are all just different distributions of Apache Cordova. Uh, PhoneGap itself uh, remains open source, so all of the things that we kind of had on top of the Cordova ecosystem, we open source them generally with an MIT or an Apache license. So. We're just adding value uh, and just sometimes we just don't go through the Apache process because sometimes it takes a little bit longer than you would like. Okay, so I mean if I'm beginning um, a brand new project on hybrid mobile, um, when should I decide that, uh, I mean I, I can start with Apache Cordova, I have all the plugins, uh, when should I decide that I need the PhoneGap stuff? Well, that's the wonderful thing about the Cordova ecosystem is that if you start with a uh, Cordova project, you can uh, immediately add PhoneGap stuff to it. But if you start with a PhoneGap project, you can immediately add Cordova stuff to it. Uh, same thing with Ionic. All of these things are very complementary to each other. Um, so there's no reason why you couldn't do Cordova create your new project and then eventually send it up to PhoneGap build or use the PhoneGap push plugin. All of these things are interoperable. Okay. Now, I mean, before we head down more of the hybrid development, let me ask you like a sort of a, a frustrating question that we sometimes get. And uh, we have been doing mobile for a long time and hybrid has come a long way. I think most modern phones have browsers and web views that are very, very fast. But sometimes, I mean, you can still walk into a Walmart and buy an Android, which is like really old and it's a new phone, but it's running an old version. So how do you get around some of these, like sometimes the performance considerations that hybrid gets dinged on? Yeah, that is a really tough one. Um, what we tend to see a lot is that the, like you said, the, the latest phones have uh, very up-to-date web browsers and, and web views that can, you can take advantage of a lot of the performance benefits. Um, for older phones, specifically older Android phones, what we uh, get people to look at is the Crosswalk plugin. Uh, so the Crosswalk plugin is actually um, a later version of Chromium. Uh, that you can just add that plugin to your application and it gives you a consistent API and a more up-to-date API, faster JavaScript uh, engine as well. So for people like still having to target something like Android 2.3, and I know that you're still out there and I feel for you, I feel for you strongly, uh, I would definitely look at using Crosswalk in order to uh, to help with that. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't know about this. So maybe we should add this to the show notes. So it sounds, sounds, sounds like like transcription, like with Babel, but with performance benefits as well? Oh, no, it's not like transcription at all. It's basically like taking the Andro the latest Android web view, 
uh, and compiling it into a static library and running it on like an Android 4.0 or an Android 2.3 device. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it does add quite a bit of size to your application package, uh, but if you need to support those older versions of Android, it'll give you a consistent interface because uh, the APIs that it supports are the same ones that you would have in, in latter versions of Android, and you would also get the performance benefits as well. Um, we can take it offline, but I can probably get you in touch with some folks from Crosswalk so you can learn some more. Yeah, we'll, we'll love to add it to the show notes. So let's just say I have made up my mind. I'm going to go uh, deep dive into making a hybrid app. Uh, I mean, what I'm writing is pretty generic. It's uh, JavaScript and CSS and, and so on. But uh, what kind of tools do you use to uh, uh, kind of get uh, get a head start on your project? What's your tool set like? Yeah, I think I have a, probably a, a different tool set than a lot of people because I'm uh, working on the framework itself to enable people to write applications. Uh, so a lot of my day is spent bouncing back and forth between Xcode, Android Studio. Um, I use uh, the Atom editor on the desktop and various different browsers. Uh, I do really love the Chrome DevTools, but if you if you're asking me where I spend most of my time, it's Chrome, Chrome DevTools, uh, Atom, Android Studio, and Xcode. Let's get into um, some push, notifica- push notifications. Uh, Simon, you have an excellent talk that you did on push notifications using PhoneGap. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about the ins and outs of the different types of push notifications and, and how to kind of wrap our heads around all that and make sense of it in our application. Sure. Uh, just a clarifying question. When you say different types, do you mean uh, the differences between uh, Android and iOS or the different types of push notifications like background ones, silent ones, etc.? Um, I think I meant more of the latter, but we could also talk about the different differences across different platforms as well. I think that's also something that developers would be dealing with on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a lot of fun when... Uh, People are, are trying to send the, the push payload to our applications and uh, they're sending it in the wrong format. Uh, it's one of the things in my issue template is like, please, please show me what you're actually sending to the device and then I'll be able to help mm-hmm. you debug it. Um, but when it comes to uh, different types of push notifications, uh, for a long time, uh, Android was really uh, leading the way on things like this. Uh, it had, you know, just besides the, the regular text notifications, you could send large picture notifications, um, a lot of stuff with action buttons and uh, inbox styling, lots of different formats. Uh, as of iOS 10, uh, we've now got a lot more functionality on that as well. And I really liked even in, in earlier versions of iOS how you could have action buttons, which is a, is a huge benefit. So i got a question here. I mean, Push notifications are great to um, kind of increase the user engagement with your app, but is there a downside? Like, could you like overdo it? Oh yeah, you can totally overdo it. In fact, uh, in in the talk that you saw, I mean, we have one slide uh, on what is the main reason why people uninstall your application, and you know, not to lead the witness, but obviously, if it's a talk about push notifications, the main reason is annoying push notifications. Uh, if you end up sending too many notifications, uh, you're going to get people to uninstall your app. Uh, in fact, there is, I don't really want to call it by name, but there was one game that my daughter particularly loved to play. 
Uh, but I think I was getting a push notification to my phone about every three hours. And eventually that app just disappeared. And she's like, what, what happened to the app? I'm like, I don't know what happened to that app. I mean, obviously I didn't uninstall it because I was annoyed with it, but, uh, but she can still play it on her iPad. So that's fine with me. I think there's some really useful cases and you pointed out the, the buttons, the action buttons being added to push notifications. And I think like a good example of that would be uh, Twitter, um, you know, being able to tweet, retweet or like a post or something like that right from a push notification is super handy. Yeah, I think action buttons and uh, the new inline reply, which is available in the latest Android, uh, are just huge benefits to app developers. Uh, if you're not thinking around these types of conversational interfaces now, you should be. Uh, as we you know, kind of move forward into things, I see a lot of stuff going this way. Uh, and this allows people to engage with your app in like kind of micro interactions without having to open your app and wait for the initialization and all this other sorts of fun stuff. Um, the, the interesting thing about action buttons, especially on a hybrid uh, type of thing, is that you have the issue where you have to wake up the app in order to start the web view, in order to run the JavaScript. Uh, so that that was a fun bit of coding that we had to do. On Android, it's it's not too bad because you can get stuff running in the background. Uh, on iOS, it's it's really interesting because they will uh, time box you to a maximum of thirty seconds to do tasks in the background. Uh, so that was a lot of that was a lot of fun for the implementation side. Yeah, are there any certain types of notifications that people just ignore? Like you shouldn't ever put in your application or use at a bare minimum. Uh, I think the ones that people are more likely to ignore are the ones that are non-targeted. Uh, so when you send that blanket push notification out at three in the morning uh, to all of your users, um, that's that's just a waste. Uh, first off, if somebody hasn't enabled do not disturb and it uh, wakes them up, they're going to be really ticked off at your application. Uh, as well, what we're seeing with uh, apps or sorry apps sending push notifications. Uh, out to everybody. Those are opened at about 3% of the time. Uh, but if you start targeting your notifications, you can get these ones open up to 7% of the time. Uh, that doesn't seem like a huge uh, bump, but if you're a marketer and you can say we can more than double the engagement, uh, they're going to go crazy over that. So, so targeting is definitely the way to go. So Simon, I know one of the things you recommend to kind of increase opt-in rates uh, for your push notifications is not to rely on the operating system to prompt users. Like when I install an app, uh, how does this work across systems? Like uh, should the app just tell me all of the things it needs? Uh, does it do, does it need me to sign up for push notifications right away or could I do it later on in my app with a different UI? Yeah, so it's interesting because uh, I'm going to target the, the main two platforms here, Android and iOS. So on Android, you don't need any additional uh, permissions in order to send push notifications. Uh, they just are enabled by default if the user includes uh, the push notification library. Now, that is good for the developer, but maybe not so good for the end user. Um, what you would want to do is when your app starts up, let the peop let the user you know, interact with the app for a little bit before you start shoving push notifications in their face. 
And it's always a, a real benefit, whether you're on Android or iOS, to provide a, a screen in the application where the user can configure what types of push notifications they want to get. Uh, for instance, um, because I'm Canadian and obviously I love hockey, uh, there's various apps like the Score or TSN or even the NHL's app, and they will send me updates on the score of the hockey game. Uh, but, you know, frequently I'm out and I don't want to know the score of the hockey game because I'm going to watch it when I get back home uh, time delayed. So the ability to go in and, you know, for my favorite teams to say, like, hey, don't send me the score for these things is great. Uh, but, you know, I might want to know what the score of the L.A. Uh, Predators game is because I'm not as involved with the uh, with those two teams. Now, when it comes to iOS, if you're including push notifications, uh, you are going to be prompted by the operating system in order to allow the app to send you push notifications. What you don't want to do is have the app start up and have that be the absolute first thing that your user sees. Uh, we find that in that case, uh, people are way more likely to say, nope, I don't want push notifications from this app. I mean, I'm just trying it out. I don't know if it's any benefit to me, so obviously I don't want it annoying me later. Um, so what you want to do is delay that until you actually get a chance to show the user some of the benefits of your application. And as well, don't just rely on the system dialog in order to do that. Um, I kind of like having like a few screens explaining the benefits of enabling push notifications for the end user before you actually request, request it from the operating system and it shows that ugly OS dialog. And you can use that both on Android and iOS because that's a good way to be able to show people where you can go in your application to configure the, the types and the amounts of push notifications you're going to get. Now, are some of these best practices you're talking about, are, are they just kind of common sense things or have you done some research or read some uh, research papers that show, you know, have tracked analytics on these things and showed, you know, people don't subscribe to certain types of notifications or uh, certain apps that um, prompt you to immediately sign up for notifications don't get used? Yeah, I wish I could say that they were common sense, uh, but there's actually a number of studies out there. Uh, lots of the, the major push notification vendors, uh, folks like Urban Airship, uh, study these things and track the analytics of it. And uh, they can see that apps that just immediately ask for push notifications are a lot less likely uh, to have the user opt into push notifications. So I think the overall global opt-in rate was about 50%. Actually, I think it's dipped below 50% now. Uh, but apps that wait and show benefit before asking for push notifications can get that opt-in rate up between 60 and 70%, which again, a 20% increase is, is pretty huge for user engagement. Absolutely. Yeah, and I also like apps which make push notifications kind of configurable. So instead of just a blanket uh, one checkbox that says I'm accepting push notifications, why don't you break it down for me? Like if you're a social app, only uh, do it for direct messages or mentions and things like that. So I am uh, explicitly signing up to receive uh, push notifications for the things that I care about. Yeah, that is, that is definitely a best practice. Um, I like the way that uh, Slack allows me to uh, I mean, if I turned on the fire hose on Slack, I would be getting push notifications like every three seconds. Uh, but being able to select uh, only at mentions or specific channels that I always want to be notified on is a huge benefit there. 
Yeah, we, we love Slack. I mean, we're, we're on Slack all the time, except um, except for like a single inbox now, you have like 12 inboxes and you got to be careful how many notifications you want. Yeah, I, I think, what is it? There's the hierarchy of inboxes now, and I think like <laughs> right. it's now well down <laughs> the chain. And I, I think I check my, my corporate email about once every two or three days, you know, so it's, it's fun. Yeah. So, well, all, Simon, sorry, noticed, uh, you know, browsers are, are starting to push notifications as well. Have you dealt with, dealt with that at all? Yeah, actually, uh, what we released in the 1.80 version of the push plugin uh, with support for browser notifications. Uh, so currently, right now, Firefox and Chrome both uh, implement the same uh, specification to send and receive push notifications, uh, whereas Safari has their own completely different spec because Apple. Um, <laughs> so what, what I've actually done uh, on the push plugin, uh, Cordova has the, the option to do the browser platform, and the browser platform, whenever possible, uses the APIs that are in the browser or uh, shims out calls to uh, other stuff in order to like simulate it. And so that allows you to do a lot of your development uh, right inside of the browser that you're typically uh, used to and the dev tools that you're used to. And uh, now we have the ability with the push plugin to use that uh, service worker-based API in order to receive push notifications. So that really helps out in being able to uh, test your business logic for push notifications without having to go through the compile, run, debug cycle on an actual device. So that's been a, a pretty big benefit uh, towards like getting up and running with, with push because if you've ever set up the provisioning profiles and the capabilities and all the other fun stuff with iOS, you, you know it's a pain in the ass. All right, so Simon, uh, tell us more about uh, the PhoneGap uh, push plugin that you maintain, because it sounds like what you're trying to do is unify push notifications across platforms, which is fundamentally sounds like a really hard thing to do because there are like so many differences between platforms. So what does the plugin do and um, how does it unify? Yeah, so about uh, almost a year and a half ago, um, I had started looking at the, uh, the PhoneGap push plugin. Um, it was kind of fallen into a little bit of uh, unmaintainable spaghetti code monster and each one of the platforms implemented the API completely differently. So the way that you would register uh, for a new registration ID or for a notification event was completely different on Android, iOS, Windows, Blocker, etc. Um, so I, that didn't really sit right with me because like one of the whole purposes of being able to do hybrid development is building to a single API. Uh, so I set about uh, unifying the API. Uh, I did come up with my own API because I basically wanted to do baby steps uh, towards going to the push notification API that's currently available in browsers. And at that point in time, there really wasn't a standard in the browsers, but we seem to be uh, kind of converging on the, the Firefox, Google way of doing things. Uh, so what it allowed you to do was no matter what platform you were running on, you could just write the same JavaScript code and it would handle push notifications for you. So, I mean, as different as uh, iOS, Android, and Windows are, 
Um, is it fair to say that when it comes to push notifications, I mean, the sort of architecture everybody uses is similar. Like there is an app and then you have to register the app and that particular device with a push service of some sort, which Microsoft, Apple or Google are hosting. And then they give you back a registration ID, which you fire off to your own app server somewhere else. And then that's the URL on which you keep pushing stuff. Is that, is that sound right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's. 100% correct. Um, they all kind of do that in the background a different way, but the, the flow is essentially the same. All right, so where does the uh, push plugin come in and how does it help you with this uh, flow? So unfortunately, um, if you're going to uh, connect to GCM, which is Google's push service, you still have to go in and register uh, an application with Google and get an application uh, ID number. Uh, if you're going to use Apple's uh, APNS, you still have to go in and set up the provisioning profiles and all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, but where the push plugin helps you is that you write a single bit of code where you call the push plugin in it and pass it in the parameters for, for Google, uh, for iOS, for Windows, and the plugin itself will figure out what platform it's actually running on and call the correct registration method in the background for you. And all you have to do is uh, create a registration event listener and you'll get back the registration ID. Uh, and it's gonna be in the same uh, JSON object each and every time. So what we had seen before is that uh, Android and iOS return those registration IDs even in a different format. Uh, so that allows you to take that registration ID and send it back to your application server with a consistent API. Uh, and the same thing for when you receive a push notification itself. Um, instead of having to go through and figure out the different formats, whether it be the, the GCM format or the APNS format, and extract the relevant information from it, uh, what the push plugin does is gets that stuff on the native side for you. Uh, and then gives you a number of common things like the title, the message body, uh, the badge count, and the uh, sorry the the sound that should be played as well. So those four items are always available in the push notification. And then we have kind of a catch-all bucket called additional data, and anything else will get put into additional data. Uh, and what I'm really looking for is to promote a couple of things which are called uh, cold start and uh, foreground which allows you to know if the application was started from the push notification and whether or not the push notification was received in the foreground. And I'm hoping to get those into out of additional data into the main object itself so that they're consistent across all the platforms. Okay, so I really like the fact that the plugin kind of tries to figure out what platform you're on and handle the registration on your, on your behalf. So uh, it, it sounds like a great promise, but all of these platforms have um, their own push notification paradigms. Uh, for example, like Windows has like uh, toasts and tiles and so on. So some things are obviously common, like the title, the message, the batch count, and so on. But then there are differences. Like, so how do you handle those differences? Is it all in that big JSON object? And how do you let the OS know? Yeah, so what actually happens is anything that is not common ends up into additional data. Uh, and then you would have to take a look at whether or not you're running on the Windows platform and, and use pull those pieces out of additional data. Um, but what we're really trying to do here is to look at the, the kind of the lowest common denominator. When you get a notification in, you want to be able to get that event 
uh, through a consistent interface each and every time. Okay, fair enough. And now with, with push notifications, are you, I mean, it's not a guaranteed delivery to the users, right? So do you have any sort of like retry logic built in or how does the app developer kind of handle that? Yeah, so that will be on the application server side. That won't be on the device side at all. So uh, the push plugin doesn't handle that. Um, that's something that you would either go to one of the, the major push vendors and they would have that kind of retry capability built in. Or um, you can actually build your own push notification application server yourself. Um, I actually did do that uh, for the uh, testing server that we, we run, um, which is actually available to everybody if, uh, if they have PhoneGap CLI installed. Uh, but basically, you need to take a look at uh, on GCM whether or not the, the message was actually received, and then you can look at doing retries because GCM will tell you that. Uh, APNS, on the other hand, you have to register to another service called the feedback service, and that will let you know whether or not the message was received as well. And then you could do some of the retries. But push notifications themselves are not ever guaranteed to make it to the device. So it's not something that you want to use for mission critical type things. Yeah. Now, also with like push notifications, I mean, there are different uh, states that your app can be when you receive the notification, right? There can be background ones. So uh, like, what are some of these like silent notifications? I know uh, there is an idea of like updating your app content behind the scenes. So uh, what are some of these things? Yeah. So um, the way that the push notification plugin is written right now, uh, if you receive a push notification and your app is on the foreground, then nothing appears in the notification shade, and that's per the operating system's directives. You should not see anything in the notification shade. Uh, what happens is that your on-notification event handler gets fired, and then the app itself decides whether or not it wants to show a pop-up or play a sound or anything like that. Uh, when the app is in the background and you send a notification and it has things like the, uh, the title and the body, those things will show up in the notification shade your on-notification handler won't get fired in that uh, kind of situation because you don't know whether you want to handle it or not. You want to wait until the user clicks on the notification. That's going to open your app and the on-notification handler gets called. So those are the uh, kind of two like main ways of doing things. But we also have things which you just asked about, which are the silent notifications, which is the ability for you to send things without a body and without a title. So nothing ever shows up in the notification shade, but uh, by setting content available to true on Android and iOS, that will kind of wake up your application in the background and run your on notification handler for, uh, for you. So if you're able to send that silent notification uh, to tell the app, Something like, oh, hey, there's a new version of my business logic available. Go download it from this URL that I've actually also provided in the push notification. Then you can update your app uh, on the fly without the user even having to do any interaction so that the next time that they open the app, they've got the latest code, the latest bug fix, the new interface. Or what the way I like to do it is send the silent notification, do the content sync, then tell your application server that yes, you've successfully synced the content, then send another push notification, which tells the user like, hey, we have new features for you in the app. And so when they click on that notification, it brings up the app and they have all of the new functionality. 
That's sweet. I'm sure uh, Apple loves you to update your app behind the scenes. <laughs> you know what? They didn't used to, but uh, uh, over two years ago, they changed the terms. And as long as you're not completely changing what your app does, they don't have mm -hmm. a problem with it. So it's really unlocked uh, hybrid applications uh, from you know having to go through the App Store each and every time they want to do an update. Uh, so it's it's really amazing what we can do now because... You're, that is the power of the web was like, hey, anytime you need to fix something, you just put it on to your website and it's there for everyone. Uh, so being able to do these kind of background content syncs is great too, because if you have a critical bug fix, you can push that bug fix out to everyone and then you roll a whole bunch of different bug fixes into your next release to the App Store or the Play Store. Okay, so um, testing uh, your push notifications locally, even with this plugin, cannot be easy, right? So what can developers do to maybe help themselves? Yeah, well, actually, that was something that I wanted to be able to help developers. So uh, what I was talking about earlier with the um, uh, push notification plugin now supporting the browser platform. Uh, so you can create a new uh, application and add the browser platform to it. And if you just write all of your business logic to handle the push notifications, uh, you can use the PhoneGap push command. And what it will do is send your payload up to an application server that I have written, and it will send it back down to either the Cordova, the, the application that you're running inside of the browser, or you can use the PhoneGap developer app, and it will be able to receive the push notification as well. So that, that gets you around having to set up everything uh, with GCM or with uh, APNS. Yeah, thank you for that. And, uh, Simon, where's the best place to find out more about your plugin? Uh, do you have, does it have its own web, web page? Uh, do you blog about it? Where can we learn more? Uh, basically, the, the best place to go is uh, on github.com slash phone gap slash phone gap dash plugin dash push. And that's the, uh, the repo, you know, that I try to write a lot of documentation about it. Uh, I know it could be better. So if you, if you read stuff and you're confused, please raise an issue on the documentation so I can make it better. Uh, and typically we blog about new releases on phonegap.com slash blog. And we'll make sure we include all those links in the show notes, which those will be at developer.teller.com. So you'll be able to get those links there. Uh, what about you, Simon? Do you have a personal blog that you keep up or where are you writing anywhere that we can look you up? Yeah, I have a personal blog that I've been kind of ignoring now. It's just at simonmcdonald.com and that's with an M-A-C, Scottish, not Irish. Uh, <laughs> and really the best way to keep in touch with me is on Twitter where I am at M-A-C-D-O-N-S-T. That's McDonst, which stands for McDonald Simon Thomas. It's my old Unix user ID. It's available everywhere. Uh, and, uh, yeah, please, you know, if you listen to this podcast and you have some questions about push notifications, you know, just start a conversation with me there on Twitter and we can move it to a better form. Excellent. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the show, Simon, and talking about, uh, phone gap and push notifications with us. And we'll include all those links in the show notes and hopefully start some Twitter conversations online. 
Yeah, and you know, um, one last thing, Ed, uh, a quick shout out. I think uh, when I'm doing a hybrid development, the thing that I like using is uh, something we built, uh, Telerik Platform, because it gives me that end-to-end mobile solution. So from one place, I can um, prototype my app, I can go build my app, connect to cloud services, test it, uh, push it out to the stores. Uh, I can do like enterprise-wise private deployments and do like analytics to measure how my app is doing. And I can do it on a, on a browser. I can do it uh, through dedicated IDEs or CLI tools. And uh, I mean, Apache Cordova and PhoneGab, it's a very open source world, so I can bring in all the tools and all the plugins that I need. Yeah, what I like about Platform is it's got the, the whole uh, cradle-to-grave scenario. You can start from absolute nothing and go through prototype all the way through adding analytics and publishing your app. So it's a, it's a great soup to nuts uh, solution. Indeed. All right. Thank you very much, guys, for coming on the show. Um, remember to go to developer.telerik.com for those show notes, and we'll get those up for everybody. Hey, thanks a lot, Simon. Hey, no problem. Thanks uh, for having me on the show, and Ed, it was nice to virtually meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you.